The following is a conversation I had with critically acclaimed author Dave Eggers. Owensboro Community and Technical College recently brought Dave to Owensboro to talk about his book, The Circle. I talked to Dave about his upcoming book, Monk of Mocha, some of his other works and the inspiration behind them, and about the writing center he's opening with Jim James in Louisville. I'd like to thank my friends at OCTC for making this interview possible. Do you have a um, a method that you do every day, or do you write every day? Yeah, any day that I, you know, there are days like today is not really much of a writing day because uh, I had some appointments, but I tend to uh, on a writing day. That's all I do. I, I sort of have to go feast or famine. So uh, if I uh, if it's a writing day, I really don't talk on the phone. I don't leave the house. I don't even you know, have lunches or social anything. And, uh, and then I, if it's a social day, then that's, I stack everything there. So I'll try to put, you know, every errand and appointment and everything I have to do, I have to put it all in one day because I, I find I, I can only write if I have pretty much a, a full day, an eight hour work day to work with. It's not to say I'm writing that whole time. Uh, I'm wasting a lot of that time, and but it is part of the process, just to sort of have a day and not be interrupted and have no specific responsibilities. And um, and somehow in those eight hours, an hour of productivity might emerge. <laughs> yeah, just kind of have some time to let your wheels turn and then get it down on paper. If you get a few things down on paper, is then call it a call it a day. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much it. So you have a new book coming out called The Monk of Mocha? Yeah. Yeah, I was just with Mokhtar Kanchali a few hours ago. It's about this uh, young man I got to know here in San Francisco who, uh, his parents are from Yemen, and he is working as a doorman at a high-rise residential tower in San Francisco and one day it became aware of the Yemeni place and the history of coffee because Yemen was the first country to cultivate coffee and Mocha was a a major coffee exporting location for the world's supply of coffee for hundreds of years. So it has this storied history and he sort of became immersed in that history and realized that his grandparents had coffee plants on their ancestral home in, in central uh, Yemen. And um, so he went back to Yemen. He'd been there before, but he went back and sort of refashioned himself as a coffee exporter and uh, got to know the farmers uh, all over the agricultural regions of Yemen, which is a really lush country. I don't know if everybody knows just how no. much it has. Uh, there's a lot of grow basically anything in, in these agricultural regions of the country. And so he was a, becoming a very successful coffee exporter. And then, um, but then civil war began and he was stuck in the country as the Saudis started bombing and the Houthi rebels were taking over the capital. And 
uh, Mokhtar had to find a way to get out of the country and preserve his business. And so the book uh, covers everything from him first understanding the history of coffee to a really uh, riveting escape from the country uh, at war during wartime. It's working on that for the last three years, and it's, I think it comes out in a few weeks. So you met this young man, and then you also have a book about Suitan and another book about Valentino. How do you come in contact with these people? What is the what? One of my favorite books. I think President Obama recommended it to his staff. <laughs> yeah. Both of these books have the same element of a disaster kind of going on in the background and a very personal story about people trying to overcome the challenges they face during that. And these are true stories. I, I just wonder how you, how you decide what you're going to write about and how you happen upon these stories. Well, uh, every one of them has been different. But Valentino is a, a friend of his, uh, an American sponsor of Sudanese refugees at the time, Mary Williams, who wrote to me asking if I would be his biographer. And then oh, I yeah. met the two of them in Atlanta, and we started the process of uh, talking about it. And well, it took about a year before I was sure that I could do it, and then another three years to actually write it. With Mokhtar, we knew each other from San Francisco and from the Arab-American community and from a few other overlaps, and we had mutual friends. And so one day, one of our mutual friends, another writer named Wajahat Ali, wrote to me saying, hey, did you hear what happened to Mokhtar? And Mokhtar had just gotten back from Yemen. And um, so I got in touch with Mokhtar and... You know, he told me a story which I thought was incredible, and um, and I thought, as always, like the best way to, uh, I think, illuminate a complicated moment in history is through the eyes of one person, one character, and um, what I think is hopelessly complex for most of us. We looked at Yemen and try to figure out what's happened there in the last you know, five years, especially um, try to understand the historical context uh, in which uh, you know the current uh, events are playing out, and try to figure out what did the rebels want and how did uh, they uh, overtake much of the country and what did the Saudis want, and what do the Americans want, and how all these forces are overlapping, and <clears throat> it makes it a little easier to um, tell that story if you can see it through the eyes of a character, a protagonist, you know, a real-life Yemeni-American who happened to find himself uh, caught in the middle of all that. And so that was the same with Valentino. Obviously, the South Sudanese had suffered greatly for decades under the government of Khartoum, and, um, and that was a conflict that was considered intractable and, and also just impossible to unpack, but through his eyes and through his journey, it becomes far more linear and understandable. And I feel like if, uh, if you've read What is the What, you could have a pretty good primer for at least the last 60 years of South Sudanese history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, also the poverty. And one of the most vivid scenes in the book it involves a lion. I won't give any spoilers away, but it's, it was just like a horrifying account, everything that he's gone through. And for anyone who, uh, I guess, is thinks about the immigration issues and, and what we're dealing with now, and 
I think these books are good as far as they give voice to the other side. Yemen, I think, is on our list of countries that some people want to block immigrants from. But these these stories are, there's so much empathy for these other cultures and understanding of these cultures. And, and there's also, a, I guess, a component of it where American, you know, you see some American graciousness, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. In the case of uh, the South Sudanese, um, there were South Sudanese that were resettled all over the country, including including Kentucky, and um, you know, in sort of medium-sized cities all over the country, because those were you know more affordable than resettling refugees in New York City or San Francisco, and also there was an effort to place. Well, it was a two-way effort to make sure that the these guys, the, the so-called lost boys, had access to a small enough, a close-knit enough community, and usually based around the churches of that community. And a lot of the resettlement agencies were affiliated with faith-based groups. And, and um, you know, I think that the U.S. resettlement of those 4,000 lost boys and girls was a real testament to how well we typically take in uh, new arrivals from around the world. I mean, I think that we're an incredibly empathetic country by nature, and I think that we are all descended from immigrants, except for those of Native American ancestry, but everybody else is an immigrant. So I think that we know that, and it's in our bones, and we understand that we have to welcome the next arrivals just as we were welcomed um or our ancestors were welcomed and so you know i was very proud of how the u.s took in and resettled and supported and celebrated the lost boys and um and i feel like that's when we're at our best is when we welcome those who are seeking a better life or fleeing horrors of war and um oppression in so many countries around the world. And so when the political climate changes and suddenly, you know, like the current White House is not a immigrant-friendly administration and they are trying to stoke fears about immigrants and banning immigrants from certain countries. And it is uh, absolutely contrary to our ideals and our history, and I think what offends me the most is the fear at the foundation of some of these anti-immigrant policies, because I don't consider us a fearful people, and I'm offended personally when an administration makes us seem like a fearful, ignorant people, that we're afraid of everything and everyone, and afraid of people from other countries, uh, and that's where we're at right now, that's uh, offensive to me, because I, I don't identify with this scared, timid, fearful, ignorant, backward-looking type of policy. Yeah, I do think you're right. Most uh, Americans feel that way. You said some of the Sudanese settled in Kentucky. Here in Owensboro, we have a Burmese population, and they were from Myanmar. They were persecuted for their religion, and we had church groups basically bring them here, and they settled here, and they're part of the community now. 
you have the A26 Valencia uh, writing workshop, and now you've gone national. You have one in Louisville with Jim James of My Morning Jacket. What inspired you to uh, educate young writers? Well, it, uh, it really started with conversations with friends of mine who were teachers and who were teaching kids who's, for whom English was their second language. And um, they, you know, often talked about how hard it was to, you know, get the kids up to uh, grade level and keep them there because they needed more one-on-one attention. And, um, you know, most teachers might have 120 students a day, and um, it's hard. You know, there's there's no math that works out that allows them to spend a few hours per student per day um, you know, in with individual instructions. So it really started as a very small idea where we were we opened an after school center in the Mission District of San Francisco where most of the students are from Spanish speaking homes and the idea was uh just have a drop in center where they could get help from tutors. And um and that was really the the impetus. But we found ourselves, uh, uh, the demand was so great and uh, the ideas for coming from teachers and and volunteers and students and parents kept expanding and morphing. And so we grew in a bunch of different ways very quickly into doing field trips and sending tutors into schools and publishing books and putting on readings. And now we're creating podcasts. We have three podcast studios here in San Francisco. So it just keeps growing. And I think that it's uh, just a testament to uh, how badly the services are needed, um, especially with public schools that often don't have the same level of extracurricular activities as some of the the private schools or the schools in wealthier districts. So, uh, but it's been great to see that, you know, see the idea being borrowed and adapted in different cities. And now there's the Young Authors Greenhouse in Louisville that Jim James helped start. And, um, you know, I was able to see their work in action a few months ago. It was really incredible. At an all-girls public school, I saw kids reading poetry that is being put into a collection and it's, uh, it's never anything but magical and inspiring and jaw-dropping I think to see kids finding their voice and seeing how much they feel uh, how transformative it is when they feel like they're being listened to and that their ideas are being really valued and honored and amplified right there's something empowering about just creating something that you can share and yeah, so much of school, you know, public schools in the last 15 years have been, um, you know, there's so much emphasis on testing. There's such a devaluation of creativity because you can't test creativity that so many teachers aren't able to uh, give assignments to their students where they just get to write about themselves or make up stories and all of these things. And of course, you know, our whole nation and our whole economy runs on creativity. You have to be able to make things from from nothing and think of new ideas. But we very often 
devalue or even discourage that in, uh, in you know, in in this emphasis on rote learning and and uh, constant testing. And uh, I feel like it's definitely a short-sighted uh, policy because uh, if we don't let kids have outlets and don't give them the space and the encouragement to create and to express themselves, then then they become less interested in school and less inclined to uh, to stay and 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 feel you know to want to be there because nobody nobody ever went to school to be tested. Nobody ever won't woke up in the morning and rushed to school because they wanted to be tested that day. And so if we wonder why kids don't do well or why kids drop out, we just have to look at how uninteresting we make school sometimes when we uh, barrage them with tests and and test-based learning. Right. Another skill they learn is to engage with the community, I'm sure, as opposed to other activities they could be doing, uh, writing and reading and reading aloud and sharing work? You know, we emphasize one-on-one, like, human interactions, where if you go to any of our centers after school, you, you have kids from that neighborhood interacting with adults that who have chosen to be there for free as volunteers. And the kids get that. They understand that it's a powerful thing that people have given up their time just to listen to them and and encourage their work. And um, that's a powerful uh, medicine. They actually really understand it and get it and appreciate it. And um, and then, you know, the, the tutors get just as much out of it. They get to know these incredible young people that they share their streets with and um, share their neighborhoods with. And so it does tighten the fabric of a city to have these interactions, especially there's only a, a few places where just regular people, in this case, tutors, can interact with students because, uh, you know, there's only so many places where it's like neutral ground and it's quiet and it's and it's about, you know, uh, really about talking and listening and, um, and sharing and, uh, you think about it, what else is there? I don't know. And there isn't really another place uh, outside of the teacher-student relationship, which is the prime one, and we are supporters of, of that. We always were careful to note that we are just uh, ancillary to what the schools and what the teachers are doing, but I think it's a nice um, an amendment to what happens in the schools when you can have these one-on-one experiences with members of the community. Um, I think that the kids ultimately, because they, you know, instead, a lot of kids after school would otherwise be at home. You know, their parents are working. They might be, uh, you know, just left at home waiting for their folks to get home. And uh, they might be playing video games or they might be, you know, doing other things. But here they're uh, being listened to and they're finishing their homework and they're and they're interacting with humans and they're expressing themselves, and I think that our kids that come into our centers every day end up being incredibly uh, socially adept and very gifted verbally because they've had to interact with so many adults over so many years and express themselves to so many people. They're, they end up having uh, kind of a leg up on kid, on other kids because they, uh, 
they've uh, had so many one-on-one interactions with our volunteers. And so, uh, and then, of course, so many of our students end up as volunteers themselves because they've internalized the feeling and how much it, and the impact that it had on them, and they want to give that back when they turn into teenagers and college students themselves. That's great. So it's mostly students who have a English as a second language? It ends up being that way. We don't really, I mean, it depends on the city, really, and the neighborhood even, because in some neighborhoods, like our center in Brooklyn, most of those kids are from English-speaking homes. It just so happens that that's the makeup of a lot of the neighborhood kids. And then in Boston, uh, a good chunk of the kids are from uh, Somali homes, and uh, their parents were refugees that came over in the early 2000s. And then in... um, in Seattle, uh, there's a lot of Ethiopian families. In uh, in D.C., there's a lot of Ethiopian and Eritrean families. And so it really depends. But, you know, it really starts with the neighborhood drop-in center and then whoever's within reach of that, whichever students' families are within walking distance, they become the core clients, really. And the tutors are adaptable uh, for whatever students and whatever kind of needs they come in with. And, uh, and you know, I should say that after school, like, they're doing writing homework, but they're also doing all their homework. So we really, the kids leave with all their homework finished. <laughs> and uh, even though we sort of specialize in writing and English-based homework, we the kids uh, get help on anything that they're working on. And even though it's harder sometimes to find as many math tutors as it is uh, the writing ones, but there's always a couple in the room that can help. And so, uh, anyway, yeah, we, you know, all the centers, and there's, you know, there's so many around the world now that are based on the model, and they all serve different constituents. But even though it's all part of a big network, you know, the specificity of it is really key, where it's not some standard cookie-cutter program or one type of client or one type of uh, tutor, even. They're all really specialized to their cities and their neighborhoods. Right. It's more of a, a framework to show that it's successful and then communities can open their own. Right. Exactly. I mean, I, we, you know, our national office is here in San Francisco and we don't know what the students of Louisville or Owensboro need, mm-hmm. um, but we can contribute ideas and sort of the general framework and then the educators there and tutors there and everything can sort of adapt it and um, and make it local. And I think, you know, that's, that's to some extent how public education should work, too. There should be certain national standards and then a lot of specificity to state and, and region, regional and local needs. And so uh, I think when we try to over-standardize, then I think the system as a whole suffers because learning is so individualized and so uh, it has to be so malleable to adapt to individual needs and and uh, contemporary needs and changing times. And I think education as a whole has traditionally been a little slow moving. Right. I do want to just qualify that with uh, you are an advocate for teachers and I know you were part of the uh, teacher salary initiative, or you had written some books on it, and so you're an advocate for teachers. It's definitely not a, <laughs> it's the system that is 
that is finding it hard to adapt to the the 21st century. Well, yeah, you know, we everything that we do is in support of teachers, and my mm-hmm. mom was a teacher, and uh, some many of my best friends were teachers, and some of them had to leave the profession because the conditions were not conducive to them staying, whether it's, for, you know, the salaries that were too low or pressures and the testing and the restrictions and the feeling of not being treated like a creative professional and instead being treated like a a cog in a machine or a bureaucrat or a, you know, a robot, all of these different things that can drive teachers from the profession. With 826, we get to work with incredible educators every day and support their work. And, uh, you know, we allow teachers to dream up a project. What would you do if you had 30 tutors uh, for the next three months? Like, what could you do? And then we will build that program around the teacher's plan, their idea, their biggest dreams. And so, yeah, we're supporters and cheerleaders and, uh, and, uh, because I think it's, uh, it's an incredibly misunderstood profession. And again, it's been politically, I don't know, uh, probably politicized where it didn't need to be. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, they politicize education and they, and sometimes teachers are in teachers unions are villainized, um, Mm -hmm. which is incredible. Like the two, you know, it's like villainizing firemen, nurses, or teachers is just uh, astonishing and so upside down um, when they're, when they, you know, among the pillars of society. And uh, to question them in some way or they're, and blame them for results that, uh, that, again, some politician has come up with or some standard that they want to meet or they have to compete against kids in Singapore, and if we don't have our test scores in line with the kids from Singapore, then we punish the teachers. It's a, it's a very strange uh, mentality that has been has taken over in the last few decades. Um, but uh, what, what the schools and the teachers need is more support, not less, and, and fewer punitive measures, not more. And, um, and I think that you know, the more the community gets involved, and 826 is one of those groups, um, the better off everyone will be. Instead of standing aside and judging the work of the schools, why don't you roll up your sleeves and pitch in a little bit? Right. And my, my sister and my wife are teachers. Ah, And there is a... Great. Yeah. <laughs> it, I definitely appreciate them. It, it is undervalued, for sure. Um, there's a big difference. I mean, it's the best job in the world if you feel supported. Every every teacher I know that has in a good situation, meaning their administration is supporting them and their salary is a livable one, and uh, and they get to be creative. Like every teacher will say the same thing, which is it's by far the best job in the world. It's always different. You, nothing comes close to being with kids all day and being part of their discovery and uh and it's a tragedy when we make it when we make what should be a a perfect job we diminish that in some way we devalue it and we make it um unappealing and it's just there's nothing worse than driving a great teacher from the profession which uh has happened to more teachers uh, than i can possibly count and uh that's so much of what's yeah, the issue here is how many teachers quit um, that really should be uh, 
we should move heaven and earth to keep them in the profession. But 50% of American teachers quit before the five-year mark, and that's at the very core of our problem, that we have this knowledge base that just leaks all the time, and we don't get the benefit of all those teachers that should have stayed in the profession and become better and better, and we, uh, we drive too many of the good ones out. And um, so anyway... Yeah, that's my soapbox. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are many teachers here that will appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'll switch gears here and, and get back to writing. It, want to be aware of your time. I just had a few more. Yeah, just uh, at three, I'm actually going to meet with an old South Sudanese friend of mine who um, uh, is back in town. He's in grad school now. It's not Valentino. It's another buddy of mine, but uh, he's actually the first South Sudanese guy to ever go to Stanford and graduate, and uh, now he's back in town. Really? How, how long ago was that that he went oh, to? Oh, 10 years, probably. 10 years? Uh, that he graduated. Um, now, let me think. Maybe eight years ago, I guess, he graduated. Wow, wow that's that's something. Um, that was probably right after the, the issues, like the Lost Boys, when that had happened. The- yeah, he uh, part of that, part of Valentino's class, mm-hmm. and he went straight from the camps in uh, in Kenya, you know, Kakuma to Stanford, which is uh, really remarkable. He is a brilliant guy. So many of the Sudanese ended up going to really elite schools, and now uh, my friend Samuel, who I'm going to meet, is getting his PhD at American University. Uh, so, educate, you know, this is a group of young men for mm-hmm. whom education is really important. So there's so many young guys that have gotten their graduate degrees, and they're a very high-achieving group. Right. And, you know, I can't recommend what is the what highly enough. Um, full disclosure, I'm a big uh, reader of your work, and I've, all, I've been for a long time. Thank but, you. But, you know, if you want to realize how hard these these immigrants work and uh, refugees and you know how much they love this country read that or uh Zuitan or i'm sure the monk of mocha probably has an element of that too yeah i mean mokta was born in liverpool but he grew up here and um his parents sacrificed a lot to come here and um you know, left with nothing, and his dad was a uh, janitor and then uh, dreamed of becoming a bus driver here in San Francisco and finally got that job. It's a really good union job here in San Francisco, and um, he uh, raised nine kids on that salary in a one-bedroom apartment, and his son, Mo Turb, you know, became... Incredibly successful coffee importer that's bringing great honor to Yemen and Yemeni history. And, you know, it's just, again, it's a backwards thing, just like villainizing teachers, like villainizing immigrants who all they want to do is that they want to, they love this country so much that they want to uh, raise their kids here. Yeah. And they're the bravest people there are, giving up everything that they've got and everything that they've known to come here. And somehow we, we find fault in that yeah. in some way. We, it's 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 just so upside down that uh, um, 
contradicts all of our ideals. Um, and I think that just on an individual basis, we have to think, you know, what have we who were born here, have we done the same amount? You know, have we been as brave as these people who have given up everything to come here? Are we? How do we judge them? They have, uh, they have proven how much that they love and want mm-hmm. and respect this country. So we should honor that, especially given how many, you know, immigrants have the highest rate of entrepreneurship among American mm-hmm. groups. And about half of the, the last uh, 100 Nobel Prize winners from the U.S. have come from abroad. And, you know, yeah. we have to... Uh, Anytime we forget all these basic facts. Yeah, there there is a lot of ambition in the people who do come here and have the dream and make it. Um, I wish I had right. a percentage of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, and Mokhtar is the evidence of that. I mean, he grew up very poor in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco, which is the toughest neighborhood here in the city, and. Um, you know, 11 people in a one-bedroom apartment, and uh, he had a fire in his belly and uh, achieved things at age 26 that, you know, it was only a few 26-year-olds that could claim to have accomplished as much as he has. And a lot of that comes from that immigrant zeal, you know, that desire to uh, prove oneself and uh, and contribute. And so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I hope to educate anyone that forgets who we are as a people, but to be reminded, you know, especially in communities like yours, where there are, uh, if an immigrant will become, you know, new family from Burma or from wherever else to a smaller community. And, yeah, it, um, it's amazing. And, uh, yeah, it, we're it, always taking in and supported, you know, on mm-hmm. an individual basis. It's just some of these general policies from D.C. sometimes that uh, uh, confuse the issue, you know, and um, you know, this travel ban, which is, you know, such a ludicrously anti-American policy um, that I don't think is really supported by any individual people with any knowledge of of the issue. It's just one of these rabidly uh, ignorant and unjustifiable policies that appeals to the very most base instincts, you know, and the, the most fearful and backward thinking, you know, uh, yeah. of us. But anyway, hey, you know, um, so I'm Samuel just walked in the door. I'm going to have to jump off, but I don't know if you had anything you want to wrap up with. Um, yeah, I just want to tell you that uh, your her right foot is the number one oh, yeah. children's book on immigration on uh, Amazon. Oh, yeah. But also oh, yeah. um, your uh, Monk of Mocha book is the number one Yemen travel guide. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where they come up with these categories, but... <laughs> yeah, I hope nobody uses that as a travel guide. It's uh, it's definitely not that, but I guess it's a primer to some extent. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. So yeah. Um, well, it's been great to talk to you, and um, and sorry again about how long it took to get together, but I'm glad we did it. No problem. Me too. And uh, you've been very gracious with your time, and yeah, I met you in Owensboro, and um, 
yeah, you're definitely gracious with your time there too. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, tell everybody hi. Uh, and uh, I had a blast. It was such a great trip, and uh, think about it a lot. And um, yeah, I hope to uh, come back sometime. But in the meantime, tell everybody hey. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank All you right, very man. much, David. All right. Thank you. Be well. You too. Bye. Bye.